Lord, we love you, and we thank you for another day, Lord. We're able to be here and uh, studying your word. I pray that you bless this time, that you speak through me, Lord, that we'll be faithful to your word, um, and that we'll be able to just discern uh, what you are teaching us about yourself and how you have created us, Lord. Um, We pray all these things in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. All right, so tonight... Uh, it's a couple firsts, as in, this is the first week that we are now in the modern era. And you can see, roughly 1,700 to 2,000 is what we have that identified as. Really, we're using the markers that, again, are in <clears throat> the historical theology for the church. And so that's what they're calling modern era. That's what we are calling modern era. So it's the first week for the modern era. But then also, it's the first week on this topic. Um, No, she's right up here. Uh, It's the first week on this topic. And so today, we're going to be talking about what is known as theological anthropology. If you are following, looking back at um, our old schedule for this, uh, we are out of order, but we've done that on purpose um, so we, re- we rearranged the order a little bit in this modern era time uh, just to uh, work with Pastor Jason, Sam, and myself of who's teaching what and when we'll be gone. So that's why we are on creation and humanity in the modern era. So it's a first for the modern era, and now it's also, like I said, a first for this topic. Which is very interesting, because if you've been following through, we've talked about the patristic era, we've talked about the medieval era, we've talked about the Reformation era, and now here in the modern era, we've been really repeating a lot of the same doctrines throughout the different eras. We've been tracing them through, but now we're in the modern era, and we're starting a new topic, which seems strange. Um, Does anyone want to guess why that might be the case? Why are we now starting something, a brand new topic that we did not necessarily trace through in the, other, in the prior er- eras? Yeah. So that one more time. That what would have been understood and accepted before is now questioned. Okay, yep, yeah. Anyone else? Maybe the Enlightenment changed the landscape. Yeah, the Enlightenment. We will be talking about that today as well. The Enlightenment was a huge part of it. Um, Really, when we talk about theological matters, right, we tend to talk about first, hopefully first, the primary matters. And a lot of these things we had to work through before we could even get to a topic like this, such as who is God, the doctrine of God, what do we believe about the Bible, right? How are we saved? What is the church? All of these topics we've been talking through. And um, now we feel settled on a lot of those things after the Reformation era, right? Uh, and so now we're able to talk a little bit more on other topics such as this, and with the Enlightenment as well, as Corey had mentioned, um, 
we have to revisit some of these questions on just what is man um, and what is our very purpose and how are we to act and carry out our purpose in life as humans in relation to God or maybe not in relation to God. And that was the question. So you can see our intro question. This is a very broad question. And hopefully we have some discussion on it. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? Before we get into any of the texts, obviously we're going to be, as if you've been looking through the texts, we're focusing specifically on what is the image of God and how people have thought through that. But before we even get into that specifically, maybe a little bit more broadly speaking, what does it mean to be human? Obviously, we're talking about it from a Christian perspective. Not perfect. All right. We know from Genesis chapter 3, right, we're all sinners. And so we're not perfect. All right. So that's a good start. We have to recognize our sinfulness for sure. In the image of God. But we are made in the image of God. And like I said, that's what we'll be focusing a lot on tonight. Definitely. What are some other things, though? We're sinful. We're made in the image of God. Those are really the top two things that most people talk about when we talk about the topic, theological anthropology or Christian anthropology or sinfulness of man and the fact that we're made in God's image. But I want to hear other thoughts on this. The only kind of being that is intelligent and even think about a creator. Okay, so we're intelligent and we're able to reason. Think about, you know, how I got here or what I got, you know, what is that kind of, it's that whole kind of search for meaning yeah. versus an animal just is the exist, is existing because that's all they know. Yeah, and you, you mentioned something I want to hit on a little bit more, um, that we're able to search for meaning. And, and so we're able to <clears throat> look back in Scripture, in the Genesis account, on how we were created, why we were created, so that we could find what our purpose is. Right? What does it mean to be human? I think um, you also have to, in light of that question, look at, well, what is our very purpose and why were we created? What are we supposed to do? Um, what was that? What are we here for? Exactly. What does it mean to be human? Right? When we identify what our purpose is, that's a big part of answering this question. What does it mean to be human? What are we supposed to do? Uh, does anyone have any quick answers to that question? What are we supposed to do as humans? What are we made for? Worshiping, God. Yes. Worshiping, glorifying God, enjoying, enjoying him forever. have fellowship with him. What was that? We were supposed. To, we were made to have fellowship with Him. Yes. Yeah. We're made for a relationship with God, right? And that's how we worship Him. We come to God for um, worship, and we have a relationship with God as we worship God, right? So this is really what it ultimately means to be human: is to be able to come to God in in some meaningful way for for worship. But more specifically, then, when we're looking at, well, how do we do that? Um, that kind of leads us into tonight with discussing, well, what does it mean to image him? Um, 
And does that have to do with worship or does it not have to do with worship and our purpose and ability to do what we're created to do? So I want us to look through several passages here, but we'll start with the main passage, right? God creates Adam and Eve. Does anyone want to read Genesis 1, uh, verses 26 through 27? And I have it right there on your note sheet for you. Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, and created them. All right, so we see in the very beginning, we are distinct from the rest of creation. Right? God created Adam and Eve on the sixth day, and on the seventh day he rested. But we are distinct uh, because we are made in God's image, it says, after our likeness. Uh, just a side note as well, many people would observe um, the plurality that you see here in this language when referring to God, maybe as a hint to the fact that, I mean, that he is triune here. Um, also, though, this could many other people would just say that Scholars would say that the plurality here, where you see where it says, let us make man in our image, um, just indicates the, um, the importance of the name God. And you would make that plural in order to highlight that. But here in the beginning, we see us made in God's image. So the ultimate question, well, what does that mean? right? And this has been discussed Throughout the centuries, what does it mean to be made in God's image? So that's the next question. What does it mean to be created in the image of, of God? We might have said a couple things related to this. But now let's try to answer this question more specifically. So this is obviously a more narrow question. What does it mean to be made in God's image? Or what are some, maybe we could point to different characteristics of, of what that looks like. What do you guys think? Uh, to me, I've heard it described in numbers of ways, but we are made with a, some people have called it a, a, a God-shaped void within us, a hungering that we don't feel fulfilled until we've had that opportunity to, to, to commune with God, to do the things he made us to do and to be, and all the things that have already been mentioned. And uh, you see people hungering for that and trying all sorts of stuff that doesn't fulfill them. Yeah. Um, so at least that's my initial take on it. Yeah, I think that's good. I think that's a popular one for sure. And that's in the category of, I mean, being able to have a relationship with God is what it means to be made in God's image. So relationship, being relational, being able to have the relationship with God has been identified as maybe a marker of what it means to be made in, in God's image, right? That makes us distinct from other creatures. Only we have salvation, are offered salvation, right? Not other animals. Anything else? I think these, these verses kind of uh, make me think that God created us as humans to to have some authority over and 
and duty of care toward the other things that he's created. That's really good. Yep. And so you see that, right, in the beginning here in the Genesis account, right, to have dominion over the creatures. So that's another category that people have identified. Uh, what it means to me in God's image, maybe another marker is to have dominion, right? God has dominion overall as creator, but he has made us in a way to cultivate what he has created. And we have the ability now to be creators as well. Um, so, anything else? Those are like the top two categories that most people would look to for what it means to be made in God's image. Having being a moral being, that we have a sense of what is right and wrong, a sense of um, you know, what we... I mean, there's a big argument about what that is, but uh, yeah. uh, there's a basic argument there that we are moral. Animals don't have that moral, yeah. moral attitude. So that would be under, I think, the um, maybe the broader category of being able to be reasonable, right, and being able to know what is right and wrong, being moral like that. And that is probably, I would say, another marker of what it, mean, it means to be made in God's image. So we can receive the Holy Spirit and then reflect the character of God yeah. to the world. Yeah. Yeah, so I would put that probably in the first category that was mentioned, being able to have a relationship with God so that we are able to um, show God to others, reflect him, I think, as, as you had mentioned. I, many of you all might have heard me say be, this before, um, and it kind of goes off of what Elizabeth just mentioned. And I like to think of it as us being mini mirrors, right, of, of God. Um, and only God has the glory. We don't have any glory on our own, right? So what does it mean? How do we fulfill the purpose of life to glorify him? When we say we glorify him, we're giving him glory. But how do we give him glory if we don't have any glory in ourselves to give? It's only from God. Well, you mirror his glory back to him, right? So that's a way you could think of. We glorify God. We worship him. We fulfill the purpose of life by imaging him, right? It's by reflecting his glory back onto himself. So allowing his love to flow through you um, to be holy as he is holy, right? We can only do these things if we're united with Christ, the Holy One, the one who is loving um, so that kind of brings it all around a little bit. Anything else, maybe, for this? I think we did pretty well. So we talked about relationship with God, being able to have dominion, being able to be moral creatures. Right? Yeah, on the moral, and maybe we're going to get into that in the next question. But does the fall have anything to do with that, with the knowledge of good and evil? But yeah. Before that, would we have... Would we have been considered moral? Yeah. And knowing that wrong, because clearly we showed that we didn't make a good choice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's a different couple ways you, we could go down with that question or think through that question you mentioned just now. Um, maybe to start it, can good exist up when there's no evil? Yes, it can, because God is good. 
Um, so therefore, you can be moral without knowing anything about evil, right? Um, and God created Adam and Eve good initially, and so they were morally good in their behavior and how they acted. Even before they knew from the tree of good and evil um, what sin really looked like at that time. Um, but yeah, you're right. We will get into that question now with this next part here. Did sin take away our image-bearing identity, our ability to um, mirror God? Um, why or why not? What does sin do with this image in humanity? So that's maybe another way to put the question. What do you guys think for this part? I think it got in the way of us. It didn't take it away, but it got in the way. Okay. What do you mean, got in the way? Well, we, uh, man looks for what he can do on his own. He's not looking to God a lot of times. He wants to be the head. He wants to take over like Satan did. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't look to God. And for us who are his followers, it's just harder for us to stay that way. Yeah, because the rest of the world is gone away from us. Yeah, I think that's good. If you can imagine a mirror, a picture either, either dirty or cracked. You can still look in the mirror and see a reflection but it's an imperfect reflection. And that's kind of what sin has caused. We are now an imperfect reflection. That's good. Anyone else would add? We well, added death. That wasn't in the, that, that's not an image of God. Say that one more time. We added death. Oh, yeah. When that's not the image of God. So that's part of that separation. Make some of our image not the same. Hmm. Did we carry that further, what you just said? It's interesting then how God takes on death for us then in order to restore our image. Um, but I think uh, to carry on the analogy, uh, I talk about it with the mirror analogy, very similar to Jim. Um, how because of sin... We obviously can't um, image God perfectly anymore. Uh, we therefore can't fulfill our purpose of life really anymore if that's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever uh, because we can't reflect Him well. So that we can't reflect His glory well back to Him. Um, we have a cracked mirrors. And there has been different individuals throughout the history of the church who have suggested that we have completely lose our ability to image God. Um, but I think these couple verses I have listed here in Genesis and one in James suggest otherwise. Um, you can see Genesis 9, 6 says, uh, Whoever sheds the blood of man, a man sh- uh, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his image. So scripture here is making an argument of why we shouldn't murder. We shouldn't murder because humanity, we bear God's image, and that's important. And so therefore we have dignity, we have self, self 
worth, right? Um, and then also James 3, 9, with it, it's talking about our tongues, right? We bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the image or in the likeness of God. And so there it's at least acknowledging that we are made still in some way, even though it may be a distorted way in God's image. But because we are still made in God's image, we have worth. God has um, given us worth, right? We have dignity. That's what I mean by that. We um, are deserving of respect, all people, because of that. Um, And I think... It's good to distinguish what we're talking about. We could, I, I think, fairly biblically say all humans are made in God's image, even though their image is broken and needs to be restored by Christ. But not everyone is a child of God, right? There's, so there's a distinction there. Children of God, that category could only belong to the church, to those who God has saved. But to be identified as made in God's image, I mean, that's what it means to be human. Um, so, so our image needs to be restored, right? So therefore, we, so that we can fulfill the purpose of life. Um, how can one be truly happy as a human? The only way we can truly be happy as a human is doing the very thing that we are created to do, right? Which is, again, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So therefore, we need our image-bearingness to be restored. So this leads then into the next part. How does our image-bearing identity get restored? This is all the prelude to the historical overview that we'll be doing in a little bit. Accepting Christ, right? To put it plainly, right? And perfectly, right? Because we we realize that he is the perfect one and we aren't. To recognize he is the perfect one and that we are not. That's really good. Anyone else want to maybe add more to that? Or, yes? Romans 5 answers this, both sides of this really well. Like Lon said, with, with sin, death entered, and you know, mm. just, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Then it says, for as one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's looking to the idea that Christ is the second Adam. The first Adam, the first man, brought sin into the world. The second Adam restores humanity, who is Christ. Uh, by keeping the law perfectly, right, keeping God's standard perfectly, um, so that when we put our faith in him, confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? To restore that image, to be made more and more into the image of his son, who is Christ. Uh, I really like Colossians 1, 15, and continuing uh, and many of the verses afterwards, you can see I wrote it here. Um, it says, he, referring to Christ, is the image, you still, we see how, we see that language here in Colossians referring to Christ of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether, through, uh, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of his cross right and so we see the great restoration uh at the cross as death burial and resurrection what we just celebrated right with good friday and easter um so again if you want to continue the analogy of the mirror we have broken mirrors so how do they need to get restored um we need to be united with the one who has uh, an unbroken mirror, who is Christ. Uh, Christ took on, assumed the human uh, nature, uh, and lived perfectly, never tainted with sin, uh, and was able to perfectly reflect God as being God himself while he was here on earth as man. And so then, when we are saved... We are united to Christ, right? So there is this real communion that we are able to have with Christ because we are now one with Christ. Scripture says we are in Christ. Christ is in us. There's this real intimate, real union we have with Christ. And so our mirrors are only actually, in a way, restored so we can fulfill the purpose of life as humans, because we aren't using our mirrors, we are using Christ's, if we want to use that analogy all the way. Um, and also there's a danger with using analogy all the way like this, because analogies always do fall short to some extent. Um, but I still think it's helpful, at least, when talking about this specifically. Um, I'm a lot harder against them, more critical against analogies when I'm talking about the Trinity. <laughs> so... Um, any other thoughts on anything we just talked about? Uh, of what it means to be made in God's image? Um, we identified several things, right, that have been suggested. Relationship with God, the ability to have that. Um, to have dominion, to be able to be reasonable and moral. Um, and that's been broken and we need that to be restored. All right. Let's go carry on. Historical overview. Um, Rene Descartes. Uh, Who knows who this is? What's he famous for? What saying is he famous for? Is he, I think, therefore I am? I think, yeah. I think, therefore I am. Does anyone know it in Latin? I'm impressed she got it. I'm impressed it. that she knew it. <laughs> I know, right? Okay, we'll stick with that then. <laughs> I think, therefore, I am, right? So he was uh, a philosopher, um, a Christian as well. Um, but really, he argued that all men had uh, innate ideas um, of the world by reason. Uh, so he was one to promote reason. 
Uh, he did not, or he would say that people did not need to experience something to know something. Uh, rationality became a standard interpretation of what it meant to be made in God's image from Rene Descartes. So we mentioned the category of reason being uh, rational beings, right? Uh, that That's something that he emphasized and uh, pushed that we are able to reason. We're able to know things reasonably. We don't need to experience something to know something, really. Um, obviously, there are many individuals on the opposite side of, it, of that and would say we only know things through um, experience through our senses. Um, but over time, uh, reason... Uh, being able to reflect God as the image of God uh, with our ability to reason um, became more and more popular that it became secularized in the sense that we as humans were now we're able to reason um, on our own and we don't necessarily need God in order to be able to reason um, is where it continues. So now we're at David Hume here. Uh, David Hume is, was not a believer, was not a Christian. Uh, he taught that humans derive uh, our morality and sense of self-worth completely independent of a divine being and religion. Our ultimate happiness, so this is what he would say our, our purpose uh, is for what it means to be human. He would say our ultimate happiness, our ultimate purpose uh, is instead found in the pursuit of our liberties, of our freedoms. Um, and so he widened the gap maybe a little bit more between um, God and reason. Um, he said God wasn't necessary. Uh, and then this next guy, uh, Frederick uh, Schleimacher, that's a fun name. You can see here when he lived. Uh, he is known... He has the title of being the father of modern liberal theology, of modern liberal theology. And so uh, Schleimacher argued for separation between humanity and God by articulating that the Imago Dei, which I'm using that term, and I know I didn't define that. The Imago Dei is just the Latin for the image of God. Um, so we're still talking about the image of God here. So he argued for separation between humanity and and God by articulating that the Imago Dei is located where? In the human self-consciousness. That word's always hard for me to say, consciousness. Uh, so where is our um, image-bearing identity found in us? Is it in our reason? Is it in our relationship with God? Is it in our dominion? He would say it's in our Self-consciousness, that the fact that we are able to be self-conscious, uh, that's what he would ident- identify as where the image of God is found. That's what it means. So therefore, our ability to think independ- independently or to be rationally engaged in thoughts is evident of God's image as revealed in the self. So again, he would still look to Reason, and if we are able to be rational on our own, on our own, right, on our own, separate from God, which is interesting, um, we are able to image God. 
And so you could see there's a gap that's being caused between reason, what it means to be reasonable, and what it, and having a relationship with, with the Lord. We as Christians, hopefully, I think we should articulate that we are able to be reasonable only because we have a relationship with the Lord. Um, here, uh, a dichotomy is being created. And so we are here now at Karl Barth. Um, has anyone heard of him before? That's all right, if you haven't. I, I have a large collection of his works on my office. Um, I brought the volume up that I used this quote in. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily recommend him. If you're going to read someone, he is not someone I would recommend one bit. But he is helpful in this discussion um, of image of God. Uh, he would identify as a Christian from Switzerland. You can see here when he uh, lived. I think this is helpful, this, this quote here. And this quote, he, he tries to combat a lot of the um, discussion that was being had of reason. We could be reasonable, separated from God. Um, and what I didn't mention, that Corey had mentioned actually in the beginning of this, is, is a lot um, coming up from the Enlightenment era, right? Um, which is that we're able to be rational beings. We're able to do the scientific method and find out things on our own. We don't need God. Um, so Karl Barth was trying to push back against that as a Christian, and he said this. Does anyone want to read this quote for us? Man is the repetition of this divine form of life, its copy and reflection. He is his first in the fact that he is the counterpart of God, the encounter and discovery in God himself being copied and imitated in God's relation to man. But he is it also in the fact that he is himself the counterpart of his fellows and has in them a counterpart, the coexistence and cooperation in God himself being repeated in the relation of man to man. All right. So it's kind of complicated in the way he just words these things. But what is he saying here? Does anyone want to try to take out some of the things that is being said in this quote? He's lifting man up to the level of God. Okay. Seems like, which is not, I don't think that's right. In what way would you say he is? Repetition of this divine form of life. It's copy and reflection. Okay. Does anyone else want to make a comment on this? That sounds like the image of God. Okay. He is talking about the image of God here. Um, See, just like we're made to have a relationship with God, we have like little mini relationships with each other that are similar in nature to that divine relationship. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, and so we, one of the things we identified in the very beginning, right, as what it, one of the markers of what it means to be made in God's image is to be able to be in relation with God. Um, and he really brought that out well in his writings. Um, that wasn't necessarily emphasized a whole lot. And um, like I said, I don't necessarily really recommend him, but in a, I could give him credit here, right, that he is pushing against what these previous men are saying, that we actually need to have a relationship with God in order to 
mirror him in that way. Um, but then that's also seen in the fact that we were made to be relational beings. And we have relation with each other from man to man. Um, but this is dangerous still to an extent where I wouldn't necessarily know if Karl Barth would be, should be accused of this, but people who came after him uh, developed something that was, that has become known as social Trinitarianism. Has anyone heard of social Trinitarianism? Social Trinitarianism simply is kind of what Elizabeth is hinting at now, um, where we kind of make God in our image instead of us being made in God's image. Meaning, if what it means to be made in God's image is to have relationship with each other, then we could start applying, making the Trinity practical for us in social spheres, in a sense. Um, We could say, uh, we could apply the Trinity to help us know how we should make society in the fact that we are distinct individuals, but yet we should be one unified country, society, just like the Trinity is one, but distinct individuals. Um, Like I said, I don't know if it's fair to attribute that necessarily in Karl Barth here, but his articulation has led to that. And the danger of that is that we we start to misunderstand who God is because if we make God a social agenda for us, then we separate the persons of the Godhead way too much, seeing them as distinct individuals with distinct wills and distinct consciousness um, in that sense. Right? We worship one God uh, who works uh, in three persons or who is three persons as well. If you want to learn more about the Trinity, we've done a whole semester on that already, so we're not going to get into that right now. But that's Karl Barth. Um, now we're going to get into these a uh, couple other things that uh, we've been seeing of more recent. Um, James Cone, you can see here, and liberation theology. Has anyone heard of liberation theology before? So he applies now, continuing the conversation of what it means to be made in God's image, right? That's what we're talking about. And he applies it to what is now become known as liberation theology, also known as um, black theology uh, in academic circles. So he argued that the, the Imago Dei, the image of God, is found as humans identify with the oppressed and participate in human liberation. So in order to image God well, we have to be activists, is what he would say. We have to uh, part- actively participate in human liberation. Uh, this connects humanity to Jesus. The quote, this is what he said, this, uh, the oppressed one who er- whose earthly existence was bound up with the oppressed of the land. So if we want to identify with Christ, if we want to image Christ, we have to identify with the oppressed one. And we have to liberate the, those who are oppressed. 
Um, so that's uh, James Cohen. He he wrote this uh, in his book uh, called uh, Black Theology of Liberation. That came out in 1970. 1970. So you can see kind of when this conversation was being had here. Uh, and then lastly, Rosemary here, uh, I think she's still alive, um, born in 1936 uh, with feminist theology. And so now there's another category that's being presented here. Again, um, connected to what it me- means to be made in God's image. Uh, and so this is very modern stuff, obviously. And so... Um, so Rosemary did very much the same thing as James uh, earlier, uh, that she argued that what it means to be made in God's image is to identify with the oppressed when we're looking at the sexes, which is um, women are, she would say, oppressed uh, in, the men, in the men world, in the man-made world. Uh, so I'll just write what I wrote. She argued uh, for the reworking of theology, um, so these are her words, due to the patriarchal oppression of the system, which does not reflect women as truly equal image bearers or equal recipients of redemption. So you can kind of see where this has come uh, when it comes to what people would think um, of what it means to be made in God's image. Um, And so there are some things here that are very concerning, right? Uh, Because you could see the gospel being twisted and turned uh, negatively when it comes to some of these modern articulations of what it means in the gospel. It was really a response to the misinterpretation of our um, God our image of God into a white supremacy. I mean, his is the counter to that, trying to bring to our attention, wait a minute, there is no white supremacy in an image of God. We're all made in the image of God, no matter who we are, what our color is, and that sort of thing. The same thing with feminism, I guess. So these are people fighting against um, what we as a society had done incorrectly in regards to our image. Yeah, yeah. So it is disgusting... Uh, these social issues for sure. Um, so if this interests you, I encourage you to study these things. I'm definitely no expert <laughs> when it comes uh, to this. What I really just want to show, though, is how the conversation, where the conversation has come to, I guess, when it comes to what is the image of God? Um, how do I reflect God? How Am I able to carry out the my the purpose of life, what I've been created for? And these are different um, things that have been suggested here. So, um, and these are obviously hot topics in today's world. So, further with. Maybe with even increased speed, as stuff from the academy has trickled down, even just you know sociology and theories and things like that. Um, so if if anyone is interested in kind of nerding out and um, interested in how some of the conversations have developed to some more contemporary issues that you would find in the headlines every day, every other day, um, there's a book by Carl Truman. Mm-hmm. 
called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's available on audiobook or just whatever. And I think that that's the fatter version, and he has a popular level, shorter one, that the name escapes me. But if you look up the, the name Carl Truman, you find two books, and you're interested in like this one instead of this one, or you do like I do and get the long one and listen to it like four times on audio until yeah. you finally have learned something. Uh, but that yeah. that takes some of these with a little bit less of a theological and more of like what how did uh, some of these like sociological thinkers um, you know expressive individualism how do we get uh, how does critical theory fit in there um, really good work from a faithful Christian brother yeah I would definitely recommend those works as well and if you want to borrow them I have both of those works nice um, so. Definitely, I would recommend those. Carl Truman is a faithful brother in Christ, and I really enjoy his writings. Um, he's also written a lot on the Puritans, which is another reason why I really like him. So, <laughs> All right. I want us to get to some of these reflection questions. Unless there's any other comments on... Anything that we've said so far. All right, so here's some reflection questions. Um, and we could really go anywhere with this, these discussions. Um, there's not like a specific answer I'm really looking for with these questions. So how did the time of the Enlightenment of the 17th and 18th and, uh, centuries uh, make room for a reinterpretation of creation and the Imago Dei. Imago Dei, again, image of God. Um, so you could kind of, at least I would say it's a reinterpretation. <laughs> so maybe someone might not like how I even worded that question. Uh, but what do you guys think? So we didn't specifically talk about the Enlightenment specifically, but we kind of traced through some of these individuals and we kind of saw maybe a little bit more of a separation between God and reason and the way people would articulate these ideas um, because, and I would say that's because of the Enlightenment. So how does that make room for a reinterpretation of creation? You can think of that specifically. Maybe think of Charles Darwin in that era. Um, and then the image of God. What are some thoughts? There was way more accessibility to written words to the common people. So people were able to think on things their own because there was the printing press. And before then, it was really hard to get people's works, written things in your hand. Mm. So there was no deep subjects to the common person to be thinking about those because they couldn't even get other people's thoughts. Add to a society where your thoughts, you couldn't have your own thought because it would have been, you know, uh, reacted violently if, if it did not agree with the current thought. Mm-hmm. And so at, at this point, they were like, the chains were off. And so it was like, oh, we can think about or we can make it whatever we want it to be. And so we have all these folks either thinking about it in the positive way or the negative way, but using what they're finding and, and building on that. Okay. So you, you did show like the positive 
part of um, maybe more of the modern era in the Enlightenment time where we're just we're able to access more stuff than what we were not able to before. Um, uh, so that part, right, is is good. Um, we have access to unlimited information. information. It's true. Does anyone else out though have thoughts on this first question? I, I know these questions um, you have to think through, um, and uh, could be difficult. I think the part he said about the freedom to express new ideas, yeah, because uh, martyring was. The next communication was the standard if you didn't fall in line exactly what you were told sure. prior to the Reformation. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in that regard, right, it, it, it's good to be able to express new ideas, right, um, which is what led to what I would say probably where we have become less faithful overall in our ability to at least try to reason absent God, right? And that, that's the idea that uh, individuals were trying to become more reasonable without having a presupposition, a pre-understanding of the fact that there is a trying God who created the world, um, and so when I asked the question, right, I said think of Charles Darwin and uh, his work, right, on the origin of the species. Um, we're trying to start from a, what he would argue as a reasonable position um, that is absent God, right? And so we see this coming out of the Enlightenment era. Um, and so there are benefits to it, as was articulated over here. But also, um, there has been strides away from Christianity as well, at large, as a result. Um, any other thoughts on this first question? There's a, just an elevation of rationality and reason, yeah. independent of <clears throat> some other authority. So part of that may have been kind of an unintended consequence of the Reformation, yeah. where when you start kind of like throwing out authorities and reanalyzing everything, um, then people are like, oh, it's cool to do that. Okay, yeah. we can just like, kind of start fresh and think through it ourselves. Um, and then not specifically related to um, the Imago Dei, but like that's where not, not long after that comes a lot of like, Higher criticism of scripture. Yes. Yeah. 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 So we're just starting from a different place, right? Uh, after the enlightenment, uh, we're not starting necessarily with the metaph- metaphysical understanding that there is God. Um, we're starting with a rational um, understanding that we, as humans, could reason on our own. We don't need this God figure to um, help us be to find out new things about this world. And so therefore, um, like I said, I keep going to Darwin and uh, evolution, and so that, that kind of takes away uh, our understanding of what, be, what it means to be human, right? 
there's a big difference between we've evolved into what we are today versus us being created with self-worth, right, and respect because we are made in God's image. Um, And so, therefore, you're able to now, if you follow that, the implication of that, you're able to now justify things um, if you're not starting with the pre-understanding that we're all made in God's image um, due to um, new reason from the Enlightenment era, uh, such as you can now marginalize individuals because people are more superior to than others, potentially, if we've all just evolved differently um, and we're not all starting off in the same position in God's image. So that's kind of where I was trying to go with some of these questions. Uh, how much time do we have? Four minutes. Second question. How did the uh, American slavery system undermine the biblical presentation of the Imago Dei? And that's kind of what I just hinted at with my discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so if we have this right foundation, right, of understanding what it mean, what it means to be made in God's image, that would completely obliterate um, any rational reasoning uh, to be able to um, hold to an American slavery system, right? Because all men and women are created in God's image, and therefore are worthy of dignity and respect as a result. Um, if you're starting from uh, a rational system, scientific system, that's completely absent from God, you could potentially be reasonable and end up to a position that would support something like this. So um, that's kind of where I'm trying to show absent from God, we get into big issues. Yes? God leads to immorality. So one time. So therefore, reason without God is action is is, is immorality. Like immorality is reason is, is a lack of reason. I think is what I'm I think you could be reasonable and not know Christ as your Savior because of common grace. Um, but I think, evident, like left to its own devices, it will lead to immorality. I think so. The world can justify pretty much anything if given time. Yeah. And we can do it with rationale and reason. Yes. Yes. Definitely. It really sounds good to us, too. (laughs) Yeah. Especially if it agrees with what we want to do. Yeah. It makes me think of the story I just heard of a woman who who had twins and they were born way, way, way early. And the doctor said, no, you know, we ought to just with these twins down and she said no she said we're gonna I'm gonna give birth to these twins and she did and people she had all these people praying for mm-hmm. of course now the twins are viable and they're thriving and you know but if you reason through this you know the amount of time and effort to keep these two little ones alive and to bring them along is probably not worth our effort in, in the long run if, if you're reasoning yes absent God right so in order to, like, the reason why we uh, value life is because we are made in God's image. The reason why we value unborn children, right, and all the way to death as um, an older individual, 
uh, Lord willing, is because we have a Christian worldview which teaches us we're all made in God's image. And that's the implication of this. And so that kind of leads to the last question. Why should evangelical, evangelical Christians uh, continue to engage in political discussion relating to abortion, right? Uh, because, again, we value life. Because we believe um, we are all made in God's image uh, from the womb all the way till natural death. Um, we didn't get to this third question. And I, this is kind of going a different direction than what we have been a lot is missions. Why do we do missions? Well, first, because God commands us to, yes, uh, in the Great Commission. But again, we value as many people to be restored, to be able to represent, to image God correctly so that they too can fulfill the purpose of life, right? To worship God and enjoy him to forever, to glorify the Lord and enjoy him forever. And that's done only through the proclamation of the gospel, right? People just don't reason their way into faith. People are only made disciples of Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. And so that's another implication of this, is missions. Any final thoughts or comments about anything? Thank you for uh, working through some of this hard material with me today. Um, I'll close out in prayer. Lord, we love you, and we praise you for who you are, Lord. We thank you for this time, Lord. We uh, pray that we can be faithful to you, Lord, and reflect you well. Um, we recognize that many people have articulated uh, what, it be, what it means to be made in your image, Lord, differently throughout the history of time, Lord. But we recognize that ultimately we have to look to your word as our ultimate source of authority um, to know what it means, Lord, to image you, Lord. I pray that we will all grow in our holiness so that we could reflect you well, Lord. I pray these things in your wonderful name. Amen.